Good Gab, sponsored by Skillskin, a nonprofit organization empowering individuals with disabilities through employment. All right, Good Gabbers, you won't believe it. Today we have been the executive director of the Spokane Low Income Housing Consortium. We got a lot to talk about today. I am very excited. Ben Stuckart. How's it going? Good. How are you doing? Awesome. Yeah. Thanks so much for having me on. Well, appreciate you taking some time to come hang out with us today. For sure. Well, what's happening in your world? What's going on uh, at Slick? Well, Slick's a pretty interesting organization. It's a member-based organization made up of nonprofits that build low-income housing, architects, uh, for-profit builders that are interested in more affordable housing, banks, credit unions, all sorts. It kind of runs the gamut. And uh, I started uh, the same week uh, lockdown started. <laughs> You're like, uh, welcome. <laughs> yeah. So for a couple of years, I didn't even meet anybody in person. It was an uh, interesting start to a job. And I didn't have uh, really an outline of what I was supposed to be doing. So I know for, you built this thing out of, you know, well, a, it's, a little uh, coalition of folks. Well, they had a part-time uh, executive director before I came, but we've we've increased the size and scope of our organization quite significantly since 2020. So, but it started in 1995 and really it started with all the nonprofits that wanted to build more low income housing coming together and saying, uh, we need a united voice and, uh, we really need it. It started off kind of as a development organization to help with pre-development costs and expertise. And it's shifted more into an education advocacy, and in the last year, I've really added a lot of actual direct service, which kind of makes some people nervous because there's scarcity of resources sure. always creates competition. But we try to only fill holes that exist in our current ecosystem that are really nobody else wants to fill. So can you expand upon that a little bit? Yeah, like what are some of the holes that you're, you're trying to build out right now? Well, one of the things I've seen since I started was that land is a huge you know, we're, we have the Growth Management Act, and that binds us for how far you can't really spread out as much. So then you have a finite amount of land inside cities that you can build housing on. And then 70 to 80% of the land is either commercial or it's single family zoned. Right. And so you can't build a 40 unit apartment complex for low income folks in a single family zone or a commercial zone. Um, and actually, in commercial zones, we'd love to have more mixed uh, income, uh, like think around like along Sprague or along uh, Division, more mixed income with commercial on the front level, but then above you'd have apartments. But if you do, yeah, mixed, be great looking buildings. I know. Yeah. But if you did, uh, if you do mixed income in some of those commercial areas, then Davis Bacon kicks in. And the commercial real estate developers can't afford that right now, especially with costs just uh, really extraordinarily increasing um, over the last couple of years. And when developers just see those kind of wages, too, and like some of the things you have to do, weekly payrolls, all that, everyone well, gets scared. We're going through one right now at Skillskin. Like, all right, no, we got to figure this out. We got to get some more people working. Well, yeah, so. and there's other barriers that low-income housing has that other market-rate apartments don't. One is you need a lot of lawyers because as you get into these federal and state funding sources, it gets really confusing. But the other one is there's a set called the Evergreen Standards 
we're going way off on a tangent, but it's, it's actually... <laughs> it's worth it, everybody. It's, it's pretty important <laughs> because if you think about it, we want more low-income housing, and your rent in low-income housing is set at a certain level, which is much lower than a market-rate apartment. And so you're only able to recoup this X number of costs if you build low-income housing and you're a nonprofit. But um, 10 years ago, the state legislature said if you're going to build buildings, state of Washington, you have to follow LEED standards. Yep. And somebody wrote in a line in that legislation that said, and if you take any money from the state, you have to follow our regulations, not LEED, but we're going to let commerce write their own set of regulations. And so they wrote this 90-page environmental document called the Evergreen Standards that are quite onerous if you're building low-income housing. And so what you have is, is we did a test two years ago and took an um, apartment building and costed it out what per square foot it would cost if um, Greenstone built it um, in market rate with none of the rules and regulations uh-huh. that low-income housing is, and it came out to about $100, uh, $100 a square foot. And so then we went to Catholic Charities and said, well, you build this exact same building with all of the rules and regulations, and it costs $150 a square foot. And so you're left with, a, to me, it's an interesting conundrum, is, is that you're making low-income housing so much more expensive to build than market rate housing, you then disincentivize anybody else from wanting to build low income housing and making it so expensive that to build it with the subsidy that's available from the state and the local government and the federal government, you actually are are losing money at times. Totally. And so you can't operate though as a nonprofit losing money, you're just supposed to not make a profit. And so then you get into the secondary conundrum of when you're offering housing, these are sometimes a lot of the folks have co-occurring disorders or one very severe disorder or they need help and or just a coach. Totally. You know, they need peer support some, maybe. Some real, yeah, yeah support, some real support. Whole person support. But if it costs you to operate that and you're only breaking even, you then don't have funds as well um, to help people move on because a successful low-income housing community would look like something where – okay, I'm on hard luck and I have to go into low-income housing and that, by having shelter, stabilizes me and then I'm able to move on to maybe some market-rate apartment. But market-rate apartments, as we've seen, have increased in rent by 60% over the last three years. We've made it so expensive in low-income housing that we're not able to provide the correct support services. And so then you have low-income housing units in Spokane where... You, you're not moving, you don't have a move-on strategy. Yeah, the system and, is stuck. Yeah, the system yeah. gets stuck, and you can't, there's not enough money out there to build enough unless people are in a kind of a continuum of care and moving on. Like, so say you're homeless, you're going to want to go, somebody's going to, you're going to want to go maybe into a shelter, and then out of a shelter, there's enough services, they get you into transitional housing, and then from transitional housing, you're into more permanent supportive housing, like those are the type of units that Hope House is or some of the havens at Gonzaga, yep. Gonzaga Haven. And then from Gonzaga Haven or the other havens that Catholic Charities runs, you move into like the housing authority. Exactly. Where Maybe it, some Section 8 vouchers. Yeah, Section yeah. 8 vouchers. And then from there, you move on to a market rate apartment. 
But when you don't have enough services inside the system and you've made it so expensive to build low-income housing, you create a stopping point where somebody moves into transitional houses and nothing else frees up so it doesn't free up the transitional housing for somebody that's on the street. And then you start seeing the pileup of way too many people living on our streets. And then you start hearing the different voices of anger and frustration, and then it becomes an unproductive conversation. Absolutely. But if, if you have a successful low-income housing ecosystem, you can actually kind of move it along and keep the system working. Well, you'll appreciate this. So this is something that Skillskin's been working on, and we uh, were with Catholic Charities two weeks ago in L.A. We were talking about how we can help people living with disabilities in permanent supportive housing start to move through the system because they're income limited, they're really scared of losing their housing, and you know, having a job that you're working for to 16 hours a week is almost impossible to find out there. But oh. a company like Skillson is what we specialize in. So we're, we, uh, we're talking to the other folks that work in the Ability One program across the nation. And we're standing up this pilot here in Spokane. And we're going to build this out. And Catholic Charity has been a great partner with that. Because like you're saying, if, if people are stuck and the system's stuck and we can't get that flow of people, ecosystem, I love that. Yeah. Where do we go from there? Right. Yeah, it gets tough. So you got to figure out how to make it cheaper to build low-income housing. You got to figure out how to get more funding for it so you can build more. Um, and then you need to advocate. And people do this a lot. I've seen since I'm just like focused on housing. Which people, is awesome, people, by the way. Thank uh -huh. goodness. <laughs> like, thank goodness for Slick. Thank goodness, Ben. That this is what you think about every day. Like well, this community that. needs to appreciate that. So uh, well, you're giving me way too much credit. <laughs> But if we think about, people talk about a housing crisis, and that's like completely the wrong way to like think about this. It's that we have a low-income housing crisis, we have a market-rate rental apartment crisis, and we have a home ownership crisis. And each of those have different solutions. But if we don't, we, so we should treat them as a system. We have to solve each one, because if one of them stagnates, the, other, the other's not working correctly. But the solutions aren't the same. And so when somebody says, well, if we just built more duplexes and triplexes, we've solved the housing crisis, you're, you're only solving the missing middle, which is in between the market rate rental apartments and the houses. You're solving that portion of it. But you're not solving why our single-family homes are skyrocketing in prices. Yeah, you're not connecting all the dots. Yeah, and if you don't connect the dots, parts of our system will stagnate. And that gets really frustrating when you're in meetings and somebody, if you're with the Real Estate Association, they'll argue with you that the only solution is more home ownership. And right. you're like, well, what about the guy that can't afford a home and needs an apartment? Or what about the person that's on the street that needs low-income housing? And I agree, we should solve the home ownership problem, but we all need to think holistically, if you're part of that system, you can't advocate for low-income housing to the detriment of the other parts of the system. They all and need that's to, the hard part, right? Need, right, and when somebody, and so we have this, I have this fun thing when I'm in meetings, because I've been hired to represent low-income housing, but I know if market rate apartments aren't available, then this part stagnates over here, so we need more market rate apartments. And you'll have community members that, I don't know if they live in, they live in a utopia that I don't live in. And they have a lot more hope, I guess, than I do. 
they think we're going to make it to, like when I was in Copenhagen, there were very few homeless individuals. Okay. <clears throat> and they had 20% of their stock of housing because they consider it like a right, just like we consider free speech a right or the Second Amendment and gun ownership a right. Housing is a right there. But what that means is 20%, so one in five units of housing in, in Copenhagen is subsidized. We're at about three and a half to four percent subsidized yeah. housing in Spokane. That's nowhere we're, near that. No, level. and we're 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 not in a financial yeah. position to create that. So it's not going to have. It's not realistic to argue that we should just have all low-income housing, and that will solve our problem, because that's not going to happen. So we're where we are, and so we've got to lower the prices of apartments. And how do you do that? In a, in a capitalist market society, we have a supply problem. Right. Well, there's only a point. Last I looked, I think it was a 15 to 2% vacancy rate. For a while, it got even below 1% vacancy rate. I know. It's rate. insane trying to find a place around here. Yeah. And a healthy market has a 5% or more vacancy rate, and that'll keep prices from rising. But if landlord knows that there's nothing else available, he'll raise the prices. That's how markets work. So we need to build more market rate apartments too and not argue that all developers are bad. Sure. <clears throat> we tend to demonize developers, I think. At least some people on the left demonize development as bad. And I think that's a huge, uh, huge mistake and detriment. There Because it's all part of the system. Right. Well, there was this great yeah. study in 2018. Uh, I think it was UC Davis. But you could Google... Uh, Kevin Bacon Housing Study, and it looked at 5,000 different um, permits across the country, <clears throat> and it showed for every level of permit that was applied, it freed up housing below. So, and one of their theses that really angered everybody, and when I bring this study up, they get people get really tense because <laughs> it says even if you build a million dollar mansion. That will free up somebody from, say, that's living in a $750,000 home to move into that mansion. And it goes five levels down so that you're freeing up levels in the system wherever you're building. And so it's called the Kevin Bacon study because there's only six whatever. I'm going to coin it the trickle up effect. Yes, (laughs) it's a triple up effect. Building housing is good. And that defies in your head, somebody's like, well, Building those million-dollar mansions isn't going to help anybody. No, it is. It's going to free up levels below, five levels below. So it's going to create a system moving up. There's There's pressure on all parts of the system, and you're freeing it up. And so then down here, eventually, what that'll result in is a $200,000 home freeing up for somebody that may want to move out of an apartment building. Yep. And I then, see that. That makes and, sense, logically. Yeah. And so and that study is great, and nobody's nobody's refuted that study and it's been out there for five years and I don't think it gets enough press because it really defies the logic of development is bad or high-end development is bad. It just shows it's a whole system and that we got to build everywhere. I love that. Well, let's talk about building everywhere. You were talking earlier about, um, you know, finding land, developing land. That's like the hole that Slick's starting to fill. So didn't you guys just get a grant uh, to help uh, work through some of this? We did. We got a $500,000 grant last week from... uh, Yeah, congratulations. The cool thing was they just sent me the uh, scoring for the grant, and there were 282 applications countrywide, 
and we were one of only three applications that had a perfect score. Wow. So in the top 1% nationwide, our application was. Congratulations. Um, That's awesome. And so it is. That was pretty cool when I read that this morning. So Um, what are we going to do with this? We are going to look at vacant lots. And we created a slick create. I created a land bank last year, which is basically just like you'd think it was. It's a place to keep land and then turn it over for low income housing. Yeah, there's definitely kind of a buzz about that in our community right now. And so when we got press about it last year, I had individuals that owned lots across the city contact me and give us their land. And so we had to do uh, an environmental phase one um, to assure that we weren't like accepting something with an environmental liability. We had to do title checks. We did appraisals. And now we're moving to get those pieces of land out into the community. And like one of them is just a single family lot. But there are a lot of nonprofits that need those single-family lots that maybe the big developers, they're not really interested in scattered site models anymore. And then there's a lot. It's too hard to manage, but some smaller groups, absolutely. It's great for them. Yeah, and somebody like the ARC of Spokane, who deals with the DD and DDI community, the group home setting is what works best. And you have three or four people in a house with like a service provider inside of the house and then that is the perfect, but they're getting priced out of their homes yep. now that they use. And so you need some solution like that for them. Uh, but we also were just approached by a developer um, that has 100 lots inside the city. And his developer pulled out when the city increased their um, general facility fees. Okay. And so he wants to offer it to us at half price. And so that'll be a significant opportunity. But it's basically taking that model of banking land. And then I got approached um, two weeks ago from somebody that heard I'd applied for the EPA grant. And they have a lot that uh, a radiator company had been dumping things on. Okay, so it's got some contaminants. It's got some contaminants. He bought it at an auction and didn't know. Um, And so then he did the environmental testing and it came back and said, well, you gotta pour $150,000 into cleanup. And he's like, okay, well, can I get some of that uh, ecology cleanup money? And ecology and EPA's rule is, is if you didn't know about it before you bought it, you didn't do your due diligence, and so you're not eligible. So we're negotiating with him right now to turn that dirty land over to us so that we can use the EPA grant to clean it up and then put it back into use. Awesome. And so there's That's creative. There's sites like that all over the city that were – Really yeah, there's a ton of brownfield development yeah. around uh, yeah, our community. And if somebody doesn't know the term brownfield, um, Kendall Yards was a brownfield at one point that was from the old railway stations that got abandoned when they built Expo 74. And then multiple developers had taken a run at it. And really it worked well with uh, the tax increment financing and then Jim Frank putting his shoulders into that and uh, turned out Turned out right across the river really well. I yeah, guess. pretty we damn amazing. We, we can almost see it from here, can't we? Yes, we can. Yeah. I think right out that window. Which, just <laughs> to mention, while I'm on this, and we're sitting in the library using their facilities, which is absolutely fantastic that they have this spot. Yeah, it's amazing. I'm super excited yeah. to be sitting here. Yeah, good job, City of Spokane and the library district. You just you hit it out of the park. Yeah. 
And to think they're having controversies with libraries everywhere else. Ours is just marching forward. Well, that's one of those things about Spokane, right? It's like once we get behind something, it seems that support is lasting. Right? Yeah, I think schools yeah. are really no levies failed in over 30 years in Spokane. Really? In over 30? I think it's been 30 years that's commitment. Now. Yeah. Our schools are really strong. Yeah. Our parks are strong. Our libraries are strong. We got a lot of really good things going for us. Well, and I think that we're going to really make a dent in, you know, the issue of homelessness as well. It's like, you know, we keep talking about as a community, like this regional approach that we're, you know, putting together. Like what's Slick's, um, you know, place in that? I don't. It was my idea. <laughs> Bravo. <laughs> I did a series called housingandhelp.org, and it, the series was my idea, and then I raised all the money for it. That was you? And, yeah. And oh, then right. we went to um, Gavin, who's the narrator of that, and Frank Sabota from Corner Booth. I hired him to produce it, and we all went to Houston for four or five days um, and interviewed everybody we could possibly find that had been involved in the forming of the regional a homeless authority down there and then brought that back and then gavin just started running with it because he shouldn't have never retired he should still be the <laughs> cfo of the city with the energy that guy's got but he went and convinced all the electeds that this was a great idea and uh i, I hope it goes somewhere i think by the end of this month they'll have some recommendations out and it'd be really nice like in the low-income housing world we've seen Funding uh, applications by the city get missed. Oh, we've yeah. seen money that they huge have. dollars missing yeah. out on, and we've seen money that they have in the bank that doesn't get uh, put out for the the providers for years. And then when they finally put some of the money recently out, it had to be spent within a month, which it's if impossible. Know, if you know development, <laughs> it's not a fast process to the build. ink doesn't even dry in a month on these right. development projects right and so you you've really got to take the politics out of it and it's just like gavin talks about it best when he says well transit isn't a city's job but it's a regional issue and so just like the transit authority the city's not involved or the public facilities district that runs the arena and the convention center at a certain point, the city said, we're not good at managing buildings like this, like the Opera House. And so we'll go to the PFD that runs the arena and we'll turn the, uh, we'll turn the Opera House at the time it was. Um, it's the first interstate center now. We'll turn that over to them. We'll turn the convention center over to them. And they've been doing a smash-up job with it. And so once you can get the politics out of it, I think homelessness will become a a, a more coordinated approach region-wide, which is what we need in order to really make some progress because we just see like parts of the system and low in another way low-income housing is affected is last year's budget almost cut all the local money out of low-income housing in order to pay for that shelter out on right. Trent. And if we think, you know, that, shel that shelter on Trent is going to cost us $14 million this year for 350 people and the House of Charity serves 150 people a year and runs on $3 million yeah. a year. And then it was even reported in the paper that the, um, the Salvation Army does really good work. But they were the only people that applied that were willing to take the risk to run the Trent Shelter. So yeah, they, and they cost that in. They cost that 25, <laughs> it's 25% admin fee in there. So that means out of that 13 or 14 million the city's spending, 
that's like three million plus in admin fees. Like, whoa, that's not a good use of public dollars, especially if no, it doesn't no, it's if not. it doesn't have bathrooms and running water, we're in real trouble. And then the owner of the building, he just doubled the price from four million <laughs> to eight million to buy it. But we're yeah. going ahead and spending a million dollars on cow like to me there's like I was, uh, it's a perfect example of why it's like take some of this out of uh, politics, out of the city. Yeah, let's pull it all together, a region, and just have and the professionals run this and have a plan. Like we don't have a plan that everybody agrees on, and that's how Houston. You know, Houston created their regional authority, and then had a three-day charrette on a planning process. And it, it, you know, it's, it's, it. I think it. Representing the Low Income Housing Consortium, their solution was housing with services, right? Like, that's how you get people off the streets. Mm -hmm. It's not some, it's not throw them in jail. Um, it's not move them around from place to place. It's actually finding a roof over their head. And the cost, like, even if you're sitting there listening to this saying, well, Ben, it just costs way too much. And you've just talked about how expensive low income housing is. It costs three times more for somebody to be on the street than it does to house them and have proper services. Not to mention how much and, does it cost when someone ends up in jail, too. Yeah, like, and I think the three times cost. It's about $90,000 yeah. for somebody to live on the street to the taxpayer. It's about 30000 in housing. And so it's just an economic choice as a, as a community we need to make. So Those numbers you, need to get spread out. Good gabbers, you heard this. Tell your friends, like... Put people in housing. It's cheaper. <laughs> it's much cheaper than having them go to the emergency room, having them put in mental institutions and then let loose, than having uh, downtown, if you talk to the police or the fire stations, like 80% of the calls are for individuals living on the streets, and then they take some of them to jail, and then they're released. It's, it, it's the most inefficient system. It, it, you, can, yeah. you can house them, make their lives better, and at the same time, solve a problem. Heck it's like, yeah. and save money. This is a lot of wins here. Yeah. Well, I love that you helped, you know, start to put this together, that our region is coming together saying, yes, we're going to do this. What's the business community's responsibility here? Because that's something that just, I'm, I haven't been, you know, I haven't heard that part yet. And I'm really interested. I guess if you talk to like Chris Patterson, who works for Washington Trust and has been doing a lot of work around this, he issue. was on this podcast. All right, yeah, I think he was like number three. Okay, yeah. but I think Chris in the business community, and then the individuals I've spoken at at Avista, who's really always been a community leader and one of the, the largest employers, if not the largest employer in our region. When I talked to them, started talking about homelessness, they'd always ask for, "What's the plan, though?" And I really think if the regional homeless authority forms and the city, the county, and maybe maybe the valley not, it, it, it could it may come just, on valley, come join us. It may just start <laughs> with the city and the county, but then I think you'll see philanthropy like the Empire Health Foundation and Inovia join as well because they're putting money out into the community, and then I think you'll see. If the plan is formed right away, and I think if everybody gets together and says, this is our five and ten year plan to really, and I don't think you're going to solve homelessness. Sure. I think you could go back to where we were at the start of the Condon administration at, we're, we're at like 2,400 now on the point in time count, which isn't exact, but it's something that's, it's the same data year after year after year. 
So it's at it's least what a, we it's, have it's to apples, measure. <laughs> it's apples to apples. Yeah. I think we can get down to around eight or nine hundred in ten years if we make a concerted effort and say this is the plan and this is how we're going to fund it and we're not going to deviate from the plan depending on who gets elected to what office. We're just going to follow this plan and get people into housing and figure out where the holes are in the system and fill those holes and really move in that direction. I think we can, actually, we, we can get there. But I think the minute you see that plan on paper, you'll see people like Avista and Washington Trust and then once they jump in, all the rest of the business community will jump in. And so instead of just having a pillar of government-funded supporting and philanthropy, I think you'll see a pillar of support that includes then business as well. It feels like that's a critical pillar, too. We need them. But it makes sense. we got to speak in, like, the language of business. Well, yeah. you got to. <laughs> that's fair. And so I get really, when I hear the word accountability, my prickles go up. Uh, because I feel like if somebody's starving to death, you feed them. And if they're in housing, but to me, accountability. So when I talk to them about accountability, I'm like the system right now is not accountable to the citizens with taxpayer dollars. And it needs to be, we need to have metrics that are easily available to everybody. What's being funded? Are those programs working? And that's where on the service side, on the provider side, they have to give too. Yeah, they do. And so if you if we're all doing different things and not following the plan, it's just as bad as the funders not following a plan. And so this plan may mean your mission shifts a bit, right? You as an agency, like what they did in Houston was you had low-income housing providers that were providing services inside the housing as well. And that's how we do it in Spokane. Yeah. Catholic Charities Buildings are built by Catholic Charities, they're managed by Catholic Charities, and then all the services offered are by Catholic Charities. And so it's a closed loop. Yeah, and it's awesome. But like Gonzaga mm, Family Haven is a is good it, version of that. It is, and it can yeah. work, but it also has its negatives. If I'm, if I'm having a mental breakdown, I'm not going to go tell the therapist that works for my landlord that I'm having a breakdown. So best. That's a fair statement. Best practice nationwide is somebody builds low-income housing and somebody else is the provider of services inside that housing. And so you separate out your management landlord activities from your service provision with different agencies. And that's what they did in Houston. They switched their so whole they made model. made a wall. Yeah. And so it provides better services, people have found. More open, better able to serve the clients. They're more likely to go see them because you can't force things on people. It has to kind of be there for you. And they're much more likely to approach somebody if they're working for a different agency. And so you get better results. They stabilize faster and then can do the move on strategy. Um, but at the same time we do this, even if we align it and have a plan and all the social service dollars and all the agencies agree and business comes on board, we still got what I talked about earlier, which is we need cheaper apartments over here that can, people that are stabilized can go to. And there's programs that work really well nationwide called rapid rehousing. And, or you can use Section 8 vouchers. Those are the two ways to get from, and then like, so rapid rehousing is basically just paying like a shorter term Section 8 voucher where I pay your rent for six months or 12 months. And then you're on your own after that. Right. So you got to get them on that transition, but we've got to get at the same time 
that we're working on this regional homeless approach, we've got to get people comfortable with mixed income neighborhoods so that if you, if I take Spokane's growth strategy when they passed the Growth Management Act was, okay, well, we're going to adopt these centers and corridors. Right. And we have 28 centers and corridors. So think of a center or a corridor as Garland District or the part of North Monroe is a really good business district that's seen great growth and improvement, right? Perry count in that? Perry is one. And so I'm going to use those three as some examples of what's wrong. Perry started shooting upward in growth when they spent money on infrastructure in 2005, 2006, and they put a bunch of street trees in and they slowed down traffic. All the empty buildings filled up. Prices rose, but it's only houses. And so... Now you've got a parking problem because Perry is reliant on people driving Driving. to the business district that is a small local business district. But business districts cannot survive on people driving to them alone. That's why there's not enough throughput of of people spending money. It's got to be people walking to it. And the only way to create enough people walking to a small business district is to surround those business districts with density. And this is according to the Real Estate Association when I, they spent $500,000 to kick my butt in 2019. It was because my answer to housing was I wanted to build more apartments and get rid of some of the houses around our business districts. And they were like, that's an awful idea because those are expensive houses. But... Who, You're like, hey, this is what we do. We build houses. We build housing. We build housing, too. We build <laughs> yeah. apartments, too. We don't discriminate in a system. You get all types. But Perry Street is stagnated. There's the there's a vacant lot on 9th and, um, 9th and Perry on the west, northwest corner. Yep. There is the new building they built that's still not full yet, two years later. And the old Highs Market has been vacant for... Uh, three or four years. That never would Highs is gone? Highs is gone. Yeah, that was a little hangout of mine when I was a kid. (laughs) But you would never have seen that eight years ago when it was at its peak of growth. Right. And so what we've seen... there's not enough people flowing through. And so we've had over 15 new businesses open on Monroe, north of Northwest Boulevard, before the Garland Hill, the North Hill area. And... I, I've made people angry because I said, unless you put apartments near there and get density along Monroe, you're going to see, and I'll guarantee this, in 15 years, that investment and all those new businesses will have peaked and it'll be on a downslope because you you have to have people walking. And the key, the cool thing about walkable neighborhoods is not just that it, it creates the the number of people that you need for businesses to survive and creates that level support for the businesses, eyes on the street yeah, it does. are Safety. safer than any number of police officers. And you start to get to and, know people, too. Like, yeah. people are building community right. in that environment. Right. But people in, yeah. uh, say, a middle-class neighborhood yeah. or a neighborhood like Perry that's risen up, they they have their NIMBY tendencies, which I don't want apartments in my backyard. But they anymore. actually need them. They actually need them if they want to stay... If they want their house values to stay high, they would build some apartments surrounding the whole business district. But we have, I think it's out of our 28 business districts, well over half of them are surrounded by single family homes and not apartments. 
And if we wanted to do one thing to strengthen small businesses in our community, it would be to go through the, con the, the map and just draw a block around every business district and turn those into the ability to create apartments and you would have more density and, and you know, land use changes are long term. They take 10 to 20 years to take effect, but we would save those business districts in 10 years. I think that is brilliant and you heard it here, everybody. Let's start, like think of North Monroe when you're driving up there, uh, those new apartment buildings are going up. Yep. Like, we need to see think that about more surrounding of those. it. Yep. Absolutely. Uh, you're really good for my ego. <laughs> well, you're good for our community. Yeah, I'm just so happy you're doing this work. And Ben, just, man, I wish we had more time with you today. There's just so much to cover. You got to come back and hang out with us. Oh, yeah. Is there anything, you know, other, you know, words of brilliance or anything about Spokane that you have to say to our listeners? Um, I guess the one thing, we're down as of today at camp, at Camp Hope, um, which is a controversial topic, but... I slick has been working on contract. Yeah, you're right with, in the middle of it. Yeah, we're right. I have three employees that work out there full time, referring people to housing, doing all the data work, um, running a rapid rehousing program. And as of today, we're down to four individuals, and one that has is in jail, so it's five. But he has a court hearing on Thursday, and what I've seen out there, and this is to me, it was kind of. I grew up, my dad ran SNAP for 38, he worked at SNAP for 38 years. He was executive director for well over 20 of those years. So I grew up steeped in this social service yeah. world. But the agencies we're working with out there is Compassionate Addiction Treatment, Revive, and Jules Helping Hands. And all three of those agencies are run by people that have lived experience, whether that's addiction or homelessness, and they hire individuals that are peer support that are acting as the case managers. And the transformation of people that have been, that I've met that have been homeless for like over 20 years, that have went to camp and then dealt with somebody that had similar experiences to them is, is absolutely, the, the, some of the transformations are absolutely amazing. And you've, people like, because, I knew homeless people when I was, and I'd go do outreach all the time when I was on city council, and I got to know some people really well, and I had a friend that became homeless and can become really hopeless. But I think what happened at camp with those providers using people that had lived experience, we need to all think about that in, if we're trying to help people, the best person to help them is somebody with that same experience that can relate to them and help them move on. And I just have been, I think it's, to me, that's like the biggest, neatest thing about Camp Hope and the fact that it's gonna close soon is, is that there's some real success stories with, it's not, it's not some guy like me that goes to college and then goes get his master's degree. It's a person that has some real struggles in life that then goes back and gives back. And that's how we're going to make real change. Oh, Ben, thank you for that. In fact, I'm going to just make a prediction here right now. I think we can solve homelessness. Right. And only this community <laughs> could do it because of that kind of work right there. Holy smokes. Just thank you so much for your time. We appreciate it. Absolutely. Thanks so much for having me on. All right. <laughs>